0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: We'll be done by one. Oh my God. Is that okay? That's yeah, that's perfect. I mean, I, I, I say that, but I'm going to have to go as quick as I can.
2: I'll talk faster. Right. I have 1.25 and 1.5. Speech modes where I, I just talk a little bit about <laughs> like, Dudman. Like, I'm a lot life. like YouTube. I can talk a bit like this and then I don't actually go up and I, and I don't go up and I don't go up
1: Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus here. So good to have you with us. My guest today is. Kind of a national treasure. I would say that he's national treasure status for sure. His name is Louis Theroux. You will know him from his face, his voice, his mannerisms and the stories he has told over and over again on our televisions. All focused, I suppose, on our psyches, our human connections, our 360 degree rounded selves, the good, the bad, the nuanced Louis tells stories about what it is to be human I suppose and by doing so, so well he has got a real cult following in the UK and beyond. Louis was born in Singapore and moved to the UK when he was one with his big brother and his mum and dad. He graduated from Oxford in 1991 and got his break in television in 1994 when he was 23 working for the American documentary maker Michael Moore you will probably know Michael for Um, documentaries like Bowling for Columbine uh, Sicko Planet of the Humans Roger and Me, he's a really famous documentarian from America Um, so it was a big break Louis getting to work with him when he did he then went on to be noticed by the BBC and to be commissioned to make the BAFTA winning series Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends and When Louis Met and then a series of award-winning specials happened including The Most Hated Family in America, Miami Mega Jail, Altered States and a feature-length documentary My Scientology Movie. He's made films about people with dementia, people with autism, more recently he did straight-up celebrity interviews, maybe you saw him interviewing Stormzy or Judy Dench or Bear Grylls and he did a podcast during lockdown um, called Grounded with Louis Theroux uh, for the BBC that was really really good he has a new podcast starting with Spotify uh, this week which was a nice excuse to get him to come over to my house and sit in the kitchen with all the doors open to the garden and have a chat now I must say that it's a risk when you open the doors to the garden because you then get all the noises of nature and humanity nearby and there were plenty. but you will hear this. I like the atmosphere of it. I like hearing the birds sing and the children laughing in the background. I love this convo. See what you think. Louis Theroux, welcome to Changes. Okay, so uh, I'm sat in my kitchen and Louis Theroux is here. Yes, I am. I tidied the kitchen earlier, Louis. Did you notice? Um, <laughs> so I thought there might be a reaction. It
2: looks tidy. I mean, I didn't see it before. Trust so me, this is tidy. I believe for us. you. But as I was tidying, it's tidier than my kitchen.
1: I couldn't stop thinking of like It's, it's strange because we've never met. No. And then I thought, God, what if he comes in and he starts picking things up? And he's like, oh, wait, you know, like you do in your, in your profiles of people when do you're what? on the television. And I was like, yeah, that's, of course, that's what you do. You go in and you look is at people's houses. MO? And I, I don't... Like, yeah. So I started seeing my kitchen through your eyes and I was like, what would they say? What would people think? If they? And then, But it's not. It's a podcast. It's fine. No one can see it. But just so you know, if you're listening at home, it is tidy.
2: It's very tidy. It's lovely. It's, I'm not being weird. Like, we're neighbours, right? We yeah. live about I, I cycled here. It took me about two minutes three minutes really and um your kitchen reminds me a bit of my kitchen
1: oh good good but yours
2: is a little tidier. well a lot
1: of the houses around here are kind of similar but what i've done today is i've opened the, the doors at the back so that the garden we, in may it's my favorite month of the year because may is when the lilacs are blossomed and um you only get about two weeks of them they're already on the turn so I thought let's sad let's way. get the lilac f- f- lovely fragrance of them in but also there's a school behind us and it's break time. So if you hear like blood curdling screams yeah. that's just the children. Yeah. Sometimes it does sound like a horror movie out there.
2: I can hear the children quite loudly. Yeah. I my producer's going to hate this me isn't for this. me plugging my podcast. I I'd be worried about the sound.
1: Oh don't say that Louis. <laughs> I insisted this on it.
2: We wouldn't put up with this on my podcast. <laughs> we can close the doors. Since it's yours, I'm fine with it. Yeah,
1: we can close the doors, but it's just a bit of a bad vibe once they've been opened. But anyway. I'm a
2: pervert for good sound.
1: Oh, well, that, I suppose you are, because that's what you do. And good sound and good... Almost to the point, like if I'm
2: doing a documentary, uh, before the sound recorder Steven says anything, I'm like, I think I can hear a plane. There's a plane. Or yeah. are, you, are you okay with that fridge noise? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, which is almost like a problem because that's how the do you be like that though?
1: When you make those movies that are so and films that are so kind of you know, you're in people's house. you can't control the fridge noises, you can't go in there, you're meeting them for the first time. I okay, know there's wreck wreckies, there's lots of wreckies. Of
2: now. So, you can control fridge noise, well, just unplug it. You unplug it. Wow, the, the trick it's of the trade ask. is that you the sound recordist or we put up the crew vehicle car keys in the fridge. So, that because the, the classic manoeuvre is to unplug the fridge, forget, and leave, and then the people you've been interviewing, you've defrosted their fridge. So, if you you leave the crew vehicle keys in, in the fridge, we I feel have. Like I should be going around picking up your things now. Like I have. No,
1: don't please don't. Um, I've been reading your book loads. Oh my god oh my god I loved it oh thank you and it taught me a lot about you which I didn't okay. know and it's funny because you know having seen you on telly for all these years and loved your mm-hmm. documentary who's such a fan of your work thank you didn't really know that much about you and now I do so you're a father of three sons yes I am and how old are they now if you don't mind me 17, asking
2: 17, 15 and 8 wow yeah
1: what's it like being a father of someone who's nearly an adult
2: uh, well I'm getting my head around that it's, it, 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 it when you're used to crisis mode like you're a parent as well like yes. you know that as a parent, you lurch kind of from crisis to crisis, or stuff, sort of feeling of mm-hmm. uh, being overwhelmed and inadequate. I mean, obviously there's a lot of pleasure mixed in with it and satisfactions, but a lot of it is, you should think like, oh, well, ba- it's a squalling baby, I have to keep it alive. You know, like, we've got to keep the baby alive, you know, and then it turns into a toddler. We've got to stop the toddler from picking up scissors and yeah. stabbing out <laughs> its own eyes or microwaving its <laughs> hands. Its you lot. know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so it's one thing after another. and Our eight year old still wakes up at seven in the morning on the dot. Like, even if he's, for whatever reason, there's been something that means Mm. he's gone to bed late, he's up like an alarm clock. And then on the other side, like, you have these kids when they hit whatever it is, 14, 15, suddenly, like, they don't want to go to bed. But they can sleep till like midday or one or two in the afternoon if you don't wake yeah, them up. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this weirdness. You've got these kind of small men in the house. I mean, this even is, that this small. is this
1: is all ahead of me. I've it's got two sons. I, what? I mean, this is what I'm trying to figure out—the teenage son phase. You
2: feel like you're kind of running a boarding house, right? And then, <laughs> and then the weird thing is, you come downstairs and there's like, why are there three bowls? Empty cereal bowls with like a puddle of milk in them. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, mean I don't if this. is very specific that to me. Now, God. And then it's like, what? Your house is no longer your own, and you just sort of feel a bit. There's a sort of slight sense of physical intimidation, right? Like you know, because like they're big. When they're small, you know, whatever happens. Like I can control this situation physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's no longer the case. If they chose to double team on me, yeah, it would be game over. Yeah. So you've got to get a bit more wily. Yeah. And find other ways of getting your way.
1: And I do. Do you now, having teenage boys, look back at your teenagerdom and your parents or your dad and think, like, do you see echoes of yourself? I suppose in your parents.
2: Yes and no. The thing is, when I was thirteen, I was sent to a um, boarding school yeah. so it was weekly so I'd be back Saturday a little after lunch and then I'd be there through end of Sunday back at home so and they had me in the holidays obviously but I don't think my parents ever had much of the experience of pure uncut um, kind of adolescent yeah. or young adult male energy mm. for weeks on end mm. my parents kind of found a work around where like mm, they just yeah like my dad would we'd be on holiday with him in the summer so he'd have us for a few weeks but his thing was always we had sleeping bags so we didn't have to think about changing our sheets yeah and um he would cook the kind of basic stuff and he just sort of let us fend for ourselves like i feel like i'm much more involved in a way that maybe my parents weren't actually and
1: is that something you want actively to do. Well,
2: uh, I'm happy to do it. Like I don't think anyone else is going to do it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but I suppose if you ha- if you if you don't if you don't have the experience of what it's like to be parented, I suppose in a hands-on way as a teenager, then yeah. you're kind of going in blind. I suppose you have Nancy, who sounds like a total legend. By the my way, my
2: wife is a legend. I also I do enjoy like, I enjoy the domestic responsibilities of being a dad, and I, I I'm someone who likes to cook. So yeah. Nancy sometimes says I'm overdoing it, like I'm cooking for them too much like you don't, why are you always cooking different meals like you could just give them oh, pizza God,
1: nancy and um, i'm
2: and i'm like why? not but i actually get up. like i've already well on the way boss. here i was thinking about oh i think tonight i'm gonna do a chicken tray bake yeah and then yesterday i did a macaroni cheese and the day before it was a bolognese but so it's not ambitious meals but i yeah. like to provide a home-cooked meal that i can get a little pleasure in um, putting it together.
1: That's good, but Louis, that's good. Amateur psychology, that's got to be something to do with the fact that you were in boarding school and you didn't have the home cooked meals during the week. You know, uh, it's kind of like a kind of subconscious, like, I'm going to provide what I. I mean, I don't I know. Don't Maybe you didn't wish that. you had that. When I don't you were a teenager. think it is that.
2: I think all it is is that. I'm someone who's naturally quite anxious. Right. I I find ways to dissipate my nervous energy with activities. You like and chopping. I like chopping. <laughs> I do. I like chopping. I like the alchemy of yeah. ingredients turning into something edible or even more delicious. I don't relax by watching mm. television if there are other people around or if I feel like there's things that need to be done. Yeah. I like to be on my we feet. Like to be doing
1: things. Yeah. Yeah. So like my dad. My dad's the same. You can't sit still. Like tinkering. If I, need I knew how to
2: fix a car or something, or yeah. you know, I'd fix you the vacuum that. cleaner. Yeah. I would probably do that. But I also like being in the mix, like the fa- you know, being in the kitchen. You're still in the midst yeah. of the family.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about your change, if you don't mind. Your mm-hmm. first change. Please. So we ask everyone their three change questions. So you cited a couple of things, um, but can you tell me about the change you cited about going to school when you were eight? That ch- that change of school?
2: Yes. Okay. Yeah. So basically. When I was about eight, um, I went from um, a kind of local state school. I wonder if this is this the one I was talking about. And then they, yeah. they sent me to a private school. Yeah. And it was a strange and, you know, and actually quite an upsetting experience. And it I had been a very happy, I think reasonably well-adjusted child at my old school. And I felt like I was in amidst my peer group who I liked and they were fun and we played football and we... At that time, probably it was the music. Like at the beginning, was Bay City Rollers and ABBA, because this was mid mid seventies. Right. But it was a kind of like this sort of South London rough and tumble um, atmosphere of a, of a of a primary school. And then I went to a private school, which was like time travel, because I was it was like being sent sent back thirty years to a prep school. What they call a prep school It's short for preparatory school, where all the kids wore uniforms. <laughs> Uh, we just no, no. I mean, primary school now they wear uniforms. We didn't wear uniforms in our day. Right. Okay. You just wore whatever. Yeah. But in this prep school, we wore like little kind of suits with pins, like bright blue pinstripes, wow. and you had to learn Latin. And there was physical punishment was still a thing. Oh so if you God. misbehaved, they would slap you on the hand with a ruler or on the bum with a, um, a shoe or something. Uh, and it was all boys.
1: Yeah, and right. It so it was wasn't all boys. a yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. And you called each other by your surnames, mm. and it was all like, oh, the Rue, this, and oh, shut up, Miller, oh, yeah. Cooper, yes, you're such yeah. an idiot. And it was, I just found it um, totally wretched.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised.
2: And um, so it was a big transition, and I, I kind of, um, one of the things, weird things happened, I felt so self-conscious about maybe not measuring up or not fitting in that I began talking differently and I actually got the nickname Posh Claude because they said I talked poshly. Whereas actually I was, I'd just come from a state school, like I think I was overcompensating right. and trying to fit in by talking a bit like this. Right, oh,
1: so it's like performative, yeah. yeah. It's kind of, yeah.
2: It was a hideous experience. Uh, what a bummer! I'm so, sorry, I chose that as my change. No,
1: but it, it like that's such a huge change. Okay, so if we rewind a little bit about what life was like before you went to this school, so you have one brother, mm-hmm. Marcel, big mm-hmm. brother, and you describe something which I really related to, being the youngest in the family as kind of being the perv- person that provided light relief yeah. in the house, like the kind of the guy yeah. who was the fun guy, mm-hmm. and your brother was the clever guy. In yeah. your opinion, that's right. Um, what were what were your parents like in the house? to live with what was your house like
2: I would say they were my dad worked at home he's a writer he's American Um, my mum worked at the BBC she's a radio producer she's English they'd met in Africa they were both teaching there they were people educated curious about the world quite literary people who um, prided themselves on how much they'd read I would say looking back there was a degree of what I see now as intellectual snobbery yeah which sounds maybe judgmental but i think that was definitely present and maybe like i don't think i think you could put it kindly and say they were people who who valued learning and
1: they were both first generation university like they you know they didn't come from wealthy they backgrounds didn't come from it wasn't wealth. like, no
2: my dad was from an immigrant family yeah in, in boston massachusetts where um his parents one was italian the other was french canadian and for them like they were yeah But my dad just went to the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and so that was a big deal, like, to go off to university. And my mum, South London, Tooting, again, went off to Oxford, but that was, you know, she was the first person in the family to go to university. So I think maybe part of it, they saw it as their salvation. They thought that we've been saved from, like, humdrum lives of, you know, whatever that was, like, just trying to make a living and get through life Mm. and, and actually educated ourselves and 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 you know they' they're both creative and and sort of insightful people, and I think they would have thought that that's what we want to pass on to our kids, yeah, and you know, my dad is a writer of some distinction, he has an international reputation he's written a, i don't know how like sixty books or something like a ton, absolute ton of novels travel travel books and so in the house when I was growing up, there was this over sort of writing well a background sense of Our dad is someone special, right? Right. And and it wasn't it wasn't spelled out, but it was it was a sort of sense of like he he's some kind of big deal, and and that we are born into this in some way, like and and probably I'm supposed to be a writer, and my brother we would have grown up thinking we're going to be inheritors of this literary tradition, Mm -hmm. which is again like at the time it just feels normal, right? But that was very that was sort of that you know looking back on it obviously wasn't totally normal
1: at any point in your childhood did they talk about the move to private school like why was that important for them that you go to those type of schools
2: Uh, because that will have
1: cost them a load of money yeah that's a big choice for a
2: couple of things happened one was you know having written six or seven books that were very well reviewed and and um you know sold a reasonable amount and for literary fiction would have been considered successful my dad wrote a a travel book called *The Great Railway Bazaar* that was a huge hit, yeah, and it was yeah. a bestseller all over the world. Suddenly, we had money, like as right. a family. Right. The second thing was, you know, I've asked my mum about this. What she said was that we she she was worried we weren't learning enough, and I and I think that you know that may or may not have been the case, mm. um, but um, that was her 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 fear and her worry. I think mixed in with it maybe was a sense on my dad's part that. He liked the idea of us learning Latin. You know what I mean? And mm. and being slight... You know, he's... As I said, he's American, but he's a... There was... A, I think there's a part of him that had an Anglophile streak and the idea of having two posh little nincompoop boys, <laughs> right? getting get,
1: around saying,
2: yes, I liked Latin. I, I can speak uh, Latin. You know, and then when we went to America, um, showing off to his family yeah. that um, he's got these two sons... Like, you know, Louis. You know, tell, tell him what you're learning in school. He doesn't sound like that. I've yeah, got yeah, one American accent that I do. Yeah. Um, what well, you know, you know, Louis. They're they're learning Latin and and um, tell him yeah. some Latin, Louis. Um, and then
1: you're rolling out your Latin. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. Go, and
2: my brother would be like, Dad, Latin's, No one speaks Latin. It's a dead language. But and you're like, Well, come on. You can say some say some Latin. Like he did. He's not. I am making him sound like an idiot. This is a kind of. <laughs> Pastiche. My dad's nothing like that, but definitely it was like a party trick of like, yeah. Oh, so Louis, dear, dad says you're at school in in London and and learning Latin. And so um I think there was a degree of us fi- of the feeling. And you know what? The school was very hot on academic stuff. Like I mean, it was a kind of like, almost to a cramming extent. Mm. So. I definitely was learning Latin and French. You were a
1: prodigious academic. And I I
2: became, like, very serious about my studies. And so, you know, although I would say it distorted other aspects of my life and possibly my personality, right, made me, I think it rendered me more or less incapable of talking to girls. You describe yourself as,
1: like, something created in a lab. A freakish man-child in culottes.
2: Yeah. A freakish man-child in in culottes. Well, the culottes was because... I'd I'd suddenly grown very fast, so my trousers didn't reach my ankles. Yeah. So there was a time when...
1: (laughs) Sorry, I didn't laugh,
2: but it is funny. Yeah, a piccolo-voiced androgyne is the other phrase, (laughs) meaning I had a high voice, and I was, because I was a late developer... And then, anyway, I mean, yeah. I could go down the rabbit hole on this.
1: You also say it was perfect for me, It's so, in some ways perfect for me, in as much as it was founded on the two lodestars of my life, withering repartee and academic work. My geekiness already in evidence was about to be turbocharged. I mean, you worked so hard all the way through school. And you got your entrance exams for Oxford when you were 16.
2: Yeah, well, that is true. Which well, is... because I'd missed a year. So, we, so so, basically, at age 13, I moved on to a, a London the boarding se- school. Boarding yeah. school. And then uh, I skipped a year because that's just what they did. I don't know if they still do that. If you were considered to be academic, they would say, like, what was then called O-levels now would be GCSEs. Like, do it. you can do them a year early. It'll be fine. Yeah. And then if you're a late developer, Mm -hmm. I can't remember how I addressed this in the book, but basically I was pubically challenged. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if this is a thing for girls. For boys, like... When you see other boys getting pubic hair and you yep. haven't got pubic hair.
1: Mm. So does, that, does, that, does that correlate traumatic. to facial hair as well? Is it the same? Uh, I need to know all this. Hair, uh,
2: you know, I don't think there's a fine Different. science about it, but basically you might get a little fluff on your, um, on your upper lip, but the main thing is you're just looking for some evidence of incipient manhood right, yeah. in your nether regions. Yeah. And you just <laughs> want coming. to see something yeah. growing. It's a bit like looking out on a lawn and being like, You know do you ever plant bulbs like when are they going to come up yeah it's like you just want something and if you're sort of 15 you let's say as i was you you're doing your gcses or o levels or whatever and everyone around you they're going right all right louis you're like yeah fine how are you doing (laughs) yeah good and then the boys can be cruel so they're like oh your voice is so piercing Call me when your voice breaks. Like make, yeah. making kind of yeah, horrible jokes, jokes. cruel to jokes, to the, fa- to the fact that you are um, basically uh, more or less a child physically. And so, anyway, yeah, it's it's surprisingly is surprisingly withering and 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 um, traumatic experience.
1: But you had your work. But I had so I buried, buried myself buried in, in, in yeah. academic
2: stuff, mm. and then finally, I did my GCSEs. I, I, I got some pubic hair. And um, and I'm fully man now. I'm happy to say it, in all departments, I don't think I really needed to say that.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and then hit sixth form and finally found some friends who I, uh, who I liked. And I don't is that my next change? Yeah,
1: so you talked about that. But just before that, yeah. just to stay on the academia. because oh, So when the, ac- when the acceptance letter came for Oxford, I find this really interesting. You said you read it with a weird blank feeling of inevitability. And then, well, of course. Where did that come from, I suppose, that feeling of inevitability? Why were you so unsurprised by Mm -hmm. your passing these Mm -hmm. exams so early and so successfully?
2: Um, Oh, wow. And you're really getting into it. Sorry. I like it. Uh, I think think there's two things I could say to that. One is that I'd done so much work, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of become a life support system for a kind of examination taking process. Do you know what I mean? Like, there were so many parts of life that I, I knew nothing about, social stuff, anything vaguely useful. But I did know how to sit and take an exam about medieval French history yeah. and write about the Valois kings of France. And so, it wasn't in a sense easy or free of stress. But I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. And and I think the other part of it is is that I, I've always had a slight Weird, um, uh, the term of le mot juste, maybe anhedonic, like this, which means sort of like without pleasure, like yeah. this feeling of sometimes it's a little bit the same. Uh, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but when I've, w- I've won a few BAFTAs in my mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm. and it's surprising how in the moment you don't feel as thrilled, you feel a bit disconnected from it. And there's some part of me that almost short, short circuits pleasure. That if you've if you've worked really hard and done something, you sort of just think, "Oh yeah," and then you get the good news. You get there's some part of you that I don't know. It feels like you you you, you just don't. Ex- I don't experience joy in a way that you feel in, like you should in, a, in an uncomplicated way.
1: Okay, so you can't just enjoy like a pure feeling of gratitude and joy Very from, from it from an achievement.
2: Yeah, I won't say never. There's times when I feel very happy. Feels like I feel grateful. There are times when I feel pleasure when work is going well. I've filmed something or edited something, and and you're just in this moment of you're in a flow state, yeah. and you're just like, this is amazing. But that's the climb. That's yeah. not the peak. That's no. not the
1: summit. And I think that's that's interesting, isn't it? It's yeah. The maybe. joy is in the doing and not actually, the achieving. You,
2: like you get a little letter, and it's like you have got in. Yeah. You're like, well, there it is. Or like, if you get an, an award, it feels very disconnected it from does. the work. Yeah. That, it, that it's Completely. notionally rewarding. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. There you go. Anyone listening, if you get an award in your life, the actual doing the work is so much more fun. The work is the real pleasure. It's more fun. Sometimes it's fun because if you've worked with a team, it's good to be able to celebrate together and yeah. say thank you. It's good for that, but yeah.
2: no, I get it. Or oh, being on location and then you drive back and you've had an extraordinary encounter with someone and you're in the crew vehicle and you're like, Oh my god, that was extraordinary! Yeah. That was so amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the real pleasure. Yeah, there's something a bit weird about awards uh-huh. in general. I don't. I think they exist and it's Agreed. good, and they re- and they can bring attention to things that n- that need to be noticed. But yeah. it, it it's not a perfect solution to whatever that is. It's <laughs> really not. Here's your here's your heavy metal object. <laughs> well done.
0: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Let's move on to your adult change, kind of the Michael Moore years, mm-hmm. discovering that you had a potential career in television I suppose yes. so he kind of plucked you I mean, not it wasn't him, it was a friend who brought you to him yeah. to work on his show TV Nation and you ended up doing these inserts for this show TV Nation in America and I suppose this is the nucleus of the Louis that we know now mm-hmm. on television and that we're so familiar with but what about those inserts and that work did you learn about what you could do the power mm-hmm. that you could have in terms of bringing stories to people
2: uh, well The first thing to say is that I had never had any ambition to be on television, right? And I had been working as a print journalist and we were talking about my dad being a writer and I I had always sort of thought, well, I'm supposed to be a writer and at some point I guess I'm going to write a book or something. And and I was was working as a journalist in New York at the time. I'd been working at a magazine called Spy Magazine. And meanwhile, in the back of my mind I was sort of thinking... Is this going anywhere? Am yeah. I going? Am I ever going to arrive where I want to be? And am I ever going to measure up to anything my dad's done in terms of writing? He's written so many great books, and I was also like aware that I've always watched a lot of television going back years, and and I started thinking like, well, maybe I should be writing on television. Like mm-hmm. at least that way, I won't be inviting comparison with my dad. And you know, this was the era of. Frasier and Larry Sanders and Seinfeld and The Simpsons and there were so many great TV shows and I thought, well, maybe that's something I could do.
1: Yeah, there's a bit in the book where you hear that apparently a lot of highly educated academic people are going to LA to write for sitcoms. And there's a little light that goes on in your head then. You're a bit like, Oh, maybe that could be you know, you kinda of put yourself in that context, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I thought I thought, well and it goes back years, doesn't it, that go in Hollywood, the idea of East Coast people who might be writers or playwrights, and then they kind of ship out to Hollywood and, and start writing for the movies. And and I, yeah, and I had a, a light bulb moment of a sort and thought, I'd love to do that. And also, I've always had a, a part of me that's sort of, I suppose, a sl- I don't want to say anti-intellectual, but a, a side of me that sort of appreciates the artistry of of the everyday, whether it's pop music, mm. um. TV, movies. I guess what I've tried to do is reject the snobbery that goes along with, well, there's real art that exists in galleries. Yeah. And then there's the things that you do day to day that you enjoy. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. Which is kind of this weird, like, um, ghettoization of, of like, different art forms. Where it's like, actually, these are all the same. I met Tracy Emin once and and I was asking her about her art. And she said to me, but what you do is art too, Louis, and I really like. I mean, that's debatable. But but I actually thought that idea that you know why gatekeep,
1: hundred percent.
2: Like we all these things that that people enjoy that have a, any part of creativity in them that involve choices that you're making to connect with people in different ways through storytelling, through the visual element and aesthetics. That's that's all art, and and I think evidently, like when you watch The Simpsons or Seinfeld or Larry Sanders, like that's art. And I thought, like, I want to be part of that art. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: and it's kind of like, the, I suppose, this sense of when you come up through academia in, in, in the kind of there's a sense of entitlement. There's a sense that only certain people should be heard. Yeah. Whereas you you've kind of spent your whole career bringing light to those people that are not. Their yeah. those voices are not very heard. Yeah. You know, they're quiet people. They're marginalized people. They're othered. They're deviants. They're, you know, they're people that would be considered strange, I suppose, in mainstream yeah. society. And those are the people that you've zoomed in on. Very that, much that's so. That's interesting, isn't it? Very
2: much. But in, and in addition to that, I would say trying to, in so far as I'm able, tell stories and bring a kind of a little bit of a sort of documentary sensibility, a little bit of a psychological curiosity, and reaching everyone. Like that's the beauty yeah. of the BBC and yeah, TV yeah, yeah. in general. That. You know, we can get into people's homes or indeed Spotify, because I'm trying to promote my <laughs> podcast. But you're basically getting into people's homes and hopefully giving them something of value, something that will make their day a little easier or make them think about life in a different way. But you were asking originally about Michael Moore. And so having all of that in my head, I sent off... I was trying to get into TV and it was not going all that well. But um, by be, because my friends had worked with Michael Moore on the pilot for this show he was doing called TV Nation... And they knew that he was being co-funded by the BBC, and that the BBC had said to Michael, "We'd love it if you had someone vaguely British on your show." And I think I was the only British person. I mean,
1: you must have been so quintessentially British to an American. Then I mean, yeah. you you know the accent, yes. I suppose. It's so 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 educated. I think anyone, charming, yeah, the talk, you know, maybe, it's, it's
2: yeah, for sure, like
1: ideal. Tick every box well, if you're trying I to think do that. Well, the
2: box that I ticked that Michael liked was that I was British, but I also had american certain american, american sensibilities. qualifications yeah. yeah i think the fact that i had an american dad who was who was himself from kind of working class background and also that i'd done i had a us passport and i had an Amer- I had done time in american journalism yeah. i think that meant that he was more likely to give me a go
1: so you did these slots for tv nation and um I guess, yeah, it was, you, it was you learning on the job, very much so, and, and you're very honest and, and funny about just kind of being thrown yeah. in at the deep end in that way. And there's a bit where you voice your worries and your anxieties about how some of these things come across and, you know, I suppose, this idea of you never really planning to be a satirist and at times yeah. feeling like you were and abusing the trust of the people mm-hmm. um, that that, that, you were, that you were using in your pieces. I suppose, was that valuable to you? Having that time to learn what you did and didn't want to do in, in that way and kind of being able to shape the future of what you could do on the telly. Uh,
2: well, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, in this notion of change, right? Yes. Um, without Michael Moore saying, oh, you know, you can be on TV. And I don't even know if we mentioned this. Like, he 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 basically said, "Like, oh, I'd like to put you on this show. Like, instead of, like, me going, I'm going there as a writer, possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a researcher or whatever, coffee maker. And he's like, no, I think you should be on the show as a presenter correspondent without that having happened i don't think i find it hard to see how i would have ended up making mm. television programs mm. like maybe look i would have found some other way of i'd like to think i've found some other way of make, working in television um as a writer but you know, whoever it is i am now i would not be that person and and making those segments gave me a chance to learn and and kind of fail and sometimes succeed and acquire some of the skills of of being a kind of correspondent i do think you know there's many people who out there who could easily have have done what i did or been been me in a sense i, mean, I think that's true for life in general i, right? I,
1: I was really interested in that because I, i've heard you in interviews kind of mm-hmm. try and not belittle but just trying to say you don't think that your education or whatever kind of helped you but there's definitely something about who you are that meant that you excelled at that you talk about when you come into the first meeting for Louis mm. through Weird Weekends, which is your first um, commission for the BBC, post-TV Nation, and you come in with these files mm. of clippings and, inter- and articles and interviews of, of people that you were interested in over the years. Yeah. Like So you were very qualified. You were doing this anyway. You were passionate yeah. about those worlds and those That's kind of true. strange corners of society. Yeah. So I do think you were made to do this.
2: Maybe. I mean, I, w- the other part of it was that I would have never pushed myself forward to do it. And the idea of being given the opportunity filled me with panic. And then first, it was it was kind of a huge blessing that the first segment I was sent to do by Michael was about groups that think the end of the world is about to happen. Like millennial yeah. g- groups, apocalypse. cults. Apocalypse, what do you call those Apocalypse sects, six. Yeah. Sects. yeah. <laughs> and. um I only said it like that because otherwise it sounds like sex. Yeah. Um, and and I thought, well, you know what? I may be totally shit at the job. Uh, and I'm definitely very nervous and in a flap about it. But at least I'm going to get to talk to these strange people. And what else? What could be better you're than genuinely that? Genuinely curious. About yeah. What, yeah, what yeah. could be better than that? <laughs> like, this is perfect. And. <laughs> And, and 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 in the end like, I just really want to I'm just so curious to meet them and find out like what makes them
1: but I think tick. if you if you're going to employ someone right you can learn how to be good on television you can learn but you can't learn how to be genuinely curious and passionate about a thing which is what you wear so I think yeah. that's the most important thing what do you think it is about you that kind of led you I mean I know obviously over the years you're your programmes have have broadened out not always to be about deviants mm-hmm. and, and the strange people, but marginalised people, or the dark side of society. But what do you think, the Louis? Then, what made you so attracted to those things? Why were you collecting clippings of people, Louis? Uh, uh, well,
2: I you know I don't have a a simple, easy answer to that because it, it's so it's so deep in me. Maybe it's something to do with a feeling of anxiety that I have. Like I've always gone going back years, I've always felt. Like quite an anxious and and worry prone person, and that. Um, so you're a catastrophist. Uh no, I'm not that because, if anything, well I guess maybe I can be. I, 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 I in some context, I'm out, but I'm also liable to sort of trust to dumb luck a lot of the time. Like I'm, I'm also guilty of saying, oh it'll be fine. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't, I don't prepare. Like I'm the kind of person who rushes out of the house and doesn't think. Maybe I should bring a raincoat. I think it'll be if it 's not raining now, it probably won 't rain. Do you know what i mean i don 't prepare for the worst in that sense, but I do think that um, I do think that my if i 'm in a new and unfamiliar situation, i tend to my default setting is that um, it 's probably bad, and my skills are probably not going to measure up. Do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and certainly going back years when there was something on the horizon <clears throat> that that felt unfamiliar I thought this is this is not good and and so in general like when I speak to someone who seems more confused than I am or if they seem to have a sense of and maybe this is more relevant if they seem to feel freer and 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 are expressing something taboo or something deviant or or dangerous or forbidden then I'm really curious to to talk to that like I'm like I'm
1: sexually is it the conviction going that they have? Am I going too deep
2: into my no. own private life? Like I'm sexually a pretty conventional, yeah, yeah, person. Like you will never read. I don't think I'm going to touch with that. You know that I was found You're dressed not up as Jamie say, Yeah, what did he do? I
1: think wasn't he found in like? Well, it wasn't even that deviant. He was just found with like in in a brothel and got cancelled when before cancellations. <laughs> you won't
2: read that. I'm. You found me in a layby in the Watford. Thing is, ironically,
1: you would be found in a brothel, but be part of your show. Be,
2: I would be hopefully filming. Yeah. You always carry a this, little camera a just excuse. in case. You know, like, um, so, 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 I, you know, like, you won't hear that I was caught dogging in a layby in Watford, or dressed <laughs> up in rubber, locked up in a briefcase. Uh, do you know what I mean? So, but
1: you, I mean, you do kind but of. I am inf-
2: interested in the people who do yeah, that. Yeah, you and infer I that them, in and your book. And books. it's not that I don't want to do that. Like, yeah, I do. You're curious about there's a, it. There's probably,
1: like, I probably might. That's there's a healthy some curiosity. Part of me that's like,
2: yeah, get me in that little briefcase. But that's I want to see I if think. I can fit inside it. That sounds hot.
1: But is it something to do with the kind of, I suppose, you, and you mentioned it a few times in the book, your life was quiet. Your life yeah. was, you know, quite predictable. And, and I, I won't say the word boring. You didn't say that. And I wouldn't say it. But it was kind of just, it was just very normal, I was in a relationship in living
2: in New York. We, I was a stoner. I would basically watch, i get high and watch videos. like, it's not legal, is it? And I, But basically I would smoke a lot of Gange, uh And you work all, you know. So was the, it
1: something to that? Was it like, was it a kind of counteraction to that, I suppose?
2: Um... I think in a way, I was someone who, yeah, I think there was some kind of yin and yang thing going on, right? I do crave experiences, but I also think, you know, maybe it's as simple as this, that thing we talked about, being working hard, yeah, being studious. This was my version of being studious as well, was like, I want to do well at work. And I think I was ambitious and more ambitious than I realised. So when I went and made programmes, like the first episode of, weird weekends was about survivalists i'm like how can i commit to this fully like how can i get as involved as possible yeah and then when i did the second episode it was about the porn industry i'm like well obviously i'm going to strip off and get a yeah. naked polaroid yeah. and obviously i'm going to get a role in a gay porn film and and we had a serious chat in the office about should i have sex with someone on camera right right i mean Fuck looking him, back how on it that would be god, god you didn't god, do that jesus i mean we had a chat like and i'm like i don't think that's no one needs to see no. that that's pretty weird yeah but you know it was on the table as a conversation yeah and 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 i think the feeling was if we're going to make tv how do we make it feel like it's not humdrum and drab like let's make something let's 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 try to take it further and 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 push it and and a lot of that is just anxiety about feeling like is it going to be any good at all right
1: yeah yeah there seems to be a kind of a commitment to being able to show people in their most rounded way. So challenge prejudices of of a label of what a person is and show people who on paper are kind of horrific in their views, but then end up being quite, you know, personable or affable or kind of charming, you know? So where do you think that comes from? Again, (laughs) being a really bad amateur psychologist, but is there something in your life where you felt like you've had to prove a wholeness in a person in a human like and you kind of want to do that or is that just a natural curiosity thing in terms of reading I th- and?
2: I think it's a few things um, I think partly it's just wanting to reflect the truth yeah. right yeah. and I think partly it's a sort of sense of I just hate are you alright with this I'm sound I'm alright with
1: the helicopter I mean we've had drums I mentioned the we've had the planes
2: sound. didn't I say I was a pervert I don't mind sound? the
1: doors are open
2: is that alright
1: okay it is pretty loud it's getting louder give it
2: 10 seconds okay and while we're waiting for the sound, I'd like to tell you a little bit about <laughs> Mailchimp. A word from our sponsors. Oh my God, Mailchimp.com.
1: Where were we? Can't even remember. Uh, no, I can remember. Oh yeah, the wholeness, the the the, the kind of roundedness, the three sixty degreeness uh. of. Telling those stories, showing the truth in humans. I think I get very easily bored and I think it's that
2: feeling and I also don't like that feeling of, hey, we're all on the same team, like that kind of group So there's thing. a contrariness to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a contrariness. Yeah, I don't do what... Well. It's a bit like when the World Cup is on and, you know, I grew up in England so I support England and then when England go like two goals up, let's say, I'm like, oh, it'd be nice if... Italy got one back, or more likely Cameroon <laughs> or Costa Rica. I'm so the same. I'm underdog. And then, then the my underdog. family are like, what is wrong Why with you? Why are you supporting what Cameroon? What is yeah. wrong with you? And they're like, you don't understand anything in football. I'm like, come on, it's it's boring and, yeah, and it's predictable and it's predictable. And you know, it's 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 you know, it's you, in a sense you're rooting for the underdog, and I also so I think and also in narrative terms. You just want things to be something different, something that you're not going to expect. Yeah. And when you arrive, and I just want to feel like the the story t- is one step ahead of where I think I am as a viewer. Yeah.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're constantly being kind of surprised. So you're like, and, um, what
2: would be what's better than you? You got your broad headline, which is we're going to go and meet, you know, crazy in inverted commas, people yeah. who've gone up to Idaho because they, they think. The end of the world is going to happen. And they're characterized as far right. And yeah. they're gun nuts. And, and you're like, okay, that's a good headline. But then once you're there, you've got 50 minutes of TV to fill. It makes it's, it's so much more interesting and satisfying. And, by the way, truthful. If when you arrive at the gun nuts house, it turns out he's a big fan of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And yeah, he's an yeah, old yeah. hippie. And his wife is uh, Mexican-born. And... And then you sit round and you find that nothing is quite as you expect, right? Mm. Yes, he has a gun rack. And yes, he does talk about when the, you know, the UN is going to invade and there'll be a big gunfight. But also, he's sort of sensitive and has self-awareness and, and, and an unpredictable set of kind of likes and dislikes.
1: What's been the thing that um, most people have said in criticism of you on telly that I've done your head in the most?
2: Uh, Like Do you feel uh, it's unfair? Well, because I think a lot of it probably is fair, right? I I, I recently went on chat GPT and I was like, write a negative review of Louis Theroux (laughs) just out of curiosity. And I was like, and it was talking about, oh, uh, does he exploit and take advantage of people who are vulnerable? I mean, I don't think that's true. I, I do think that, what is it? Look, it's quite evidently the case that I am uh, a privileged white male, privately educated, middle-class family, mm. and, and then I'm going into spaces where I have all the control. And as much as I create the illusion of being at the mercy of events in a prison, um, at a, a kind of white power mm. event, but the fact is is I am controlling the narrative. Yes. All of that's true. But the, what you said, which what's done my head in? I think the one that maybe is inaccurate is the idea that I am... More polished and I'm pretending to be like the, like faux naive or that yeah. I'm pretending to be awkward and actually whatever so far as I have a persona on screen mm. it's pretty much
1: it who is, I am it is yeah have you ever had a situation where that sense of control that you have of the narrative has been Compromised and the person that you're speaking to has either wooed you to the point where you kind of lost your sense of what you're doing in the interview mm-hmm. and, and the direction of it, or scared you into a situation or you know you felt like you've lost it on camera and it's not gone well well look there's there's good losing it and there's bad losing it right yeah because losing it can sometimes be great on camera in, in a way
2: losing it is the most beautiful thing that can happen when you're making have you been, when I'm making a documentary
1: have you been wooed by someone that, where you've just kind of where you just and
2: that's always there's always a transaction right Yeah. and I think um, and again like when I recently made a one of the more recent docs I made was about the far right that exists online in America. And the main character, contributor, interviewee is a guy called Nicholas J. Fuentes or Nick Fuentes. And after we've, you know, he's since come to f- fame because he was in Kanye's camp when Kanye oh, had his anti-Semitic um, episode and seemed to lose the plot totally. and And then... Nicholas Fuentes became his sort of political guru when when Kanye was going around saying I love Hitler and Fuentes mm-hmm. was the guy sort of in his corner. Anyway, but when I was with Nicholas Fuentes, I, I kept, you know you're aware like he's far right, he's basically white nationalist. Um, he may be a neo-Nazi. It's hard to tell. He doesn't identify as that. It's hard to tell like exactly. But the point is, is it's this very weird thing where he's quite charming, and, mm-hmm. and as much as you tell yourself that I've got this guy's number, I'm in control, I've read up on him, I know where he's coming from, and then you're in a room with a guy who's being quite funny, self-deprecating, joking around, and you're like, you're telling yourself I'm being wooed, I'm being schmoozed, uh, I'm in control, and but it's a constant act of vigilance. And that sort of goes across the board that in any time you're in an interview with someone, you have to remind yourself that they are presenting their best self yeah and then there's the after effects of learning something afterwards i mean the the most obviously um how do i say it well notorious and and kind of awful example of in a sense interviewing someone and realizing there was so much more to them mm. than you realised was, was,
1: was Jimmy, Jimmy Savile. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And the way that you managed to get him being real, not being his best self, was by literally being in his life for two weeks and having the yeah. camera on at all times and getting this little moment in you when he was watching television and wasn't quite sure. that. Yeah, he
2: was. no, I have to give props to my director, yeah. Will Yatt, and my executive producer, Kevin Sutcliffe, because they had been very much pushing us to... Absolutely, like, film as much as possible so that we would get behind this le- leathery self-caricature that he had and film him in ways that he wouldn't be expecting. Because yeah. he was always on. Well, I say he was always, but then when he seemed to have forgotten that the camera might be on, you did see a different side of him. And uh, and clearly he didn't confess to all his misdeeds, but he spoke um, brazenly about being questioned by police um, for, for um, things that he'd done in his nightclub, actually physically intimidating and possibly beating up. Locking he, people in locking boiler people rooms. Locking people in his boiler room mm. at the, his nightclub. And so that's all in the in the documentary. The documentary's back on iPlayer. Is it? Been told,
1: yeah. Which one, the original one the or original the second one? one.
2: The, 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 the follow-up, which I made after he died. Is... Are you
1: glad you made that follow-up? I th- yeah. I'm happy yeah, you did yeah, that. Yeah. I was reading a review of that and it was very interesting. They describe you as kind of a cabin boy taking taking responsibility for you know the sinking, that was Mark the sinking ship which so yeah. I thought was really good and it's really interesting and it, it, it made me think because all the way through your book as well you're very quick to self denigrate and self deprecate yeah. and kind of and put your flaws on show and put those cards That's on the true. table and say and sometimes no sometimes no, no, people no, use that perfect. against
2: you and you have to you, you shouldn't do that excessively I, I think I might be guilty sometimes of overly self flagellating so I do think that and when you know like I was taking responsibility for my piece of the whole thing which was that um, I didn't reveal that he was, you know, mm. that he was a paedophile, and I didn't know him to be one. I, but I also think you can flip it and say.
1: You can flip it and say no one else asked him directly and put that on television for the entire time. And
2: also, by the way, like, you know, having made documentaries in America, I I, I was the one who said, um, you know, we were allowed to do specials let's do a special about Jimmy Savile because that guy's really weird. Yeah, And let's spend two weeks following Jimmy Savile around because there's something about that guy that is deeply unsettling and strange. Mm. And and even if you believe half of what's published and rumoured about him, then there's still something about that that needs to be exposed. And so it wasn't that I was saying, like, we need to give this guy a kicking but i definitely thought this this is a phenomenon that exists sort of hiding in plain sight that is worthy of, of, of of sort of um exposure and 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 just exploration right so i you know it's easy to forget that
1: so funny it must be strange having such a huge library of stories and you know television and work to look back on not a lot of people have that they can see themselves through the ages from yeah. being a young 20, 23 24 year old to now in your 50s on show on film how do you think you've changed in terms of you know your attitude to television and how you sit being in front of a camera
2: I think I that's an interesting question I don't think it's like I. I think I'm a bit more confident in terms of like from those early days when I was Uh, riddled with anxiety and fear about making programs I mean I still get a degree of apprehension like there's a sort of feeling of kind of focus or a feeling of just heightened awareness before I make a documentary even in the day or two leading up to say flying out or filming I try to every time I go out there like approach, approach with the same level of seriousness like I've been making more interview type yeah, I'm interested in that. And they that. require more preparation.
1: Have you found that harder? Yeah, yeah. There's a or lot of prep harder.
2: that goes into that. So, in a sense, it's easier for me to wander around a prison, or or arrive at the headquarters of a, relig- a strange religious group, or be in a ho- mental hospital. Like that's a happier place for me because I can just sort of
1: ingest it all. I just can kind of, yeah, immerse pick. and
2: yeah. lurk. And 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 when you're doing a um a long form interview as you'll know as well as anyone like you have to do your prep you're thinking about where's this going to go how will i begin yeah where will we get to what am i what threads am i trying to pull up pull away at um but in the end um for me my lodestar is just to try and remember that it's the natural curiosity like my least favorite thing is when people i work with producers or directors uh ask me to ask a question like i wouldn't say i wouldn't say like i've got a rule about it but it has happened several times that, you know, my producer said, like, why don't you ask this?" and it's, it's taken me off the scent. Yeah. Like I yeah, really yeah. trust my instincts.
1: Yeah. Oh, that must be a wonderful feeling. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: And you think as long as you're just still curious and you're not, and I and I don't love the process of television. You know, you, when you do a magazine uh, interview now, like I did a thing for British Vogue, and I right. go along and and you arrive and you're like, "Oh wow, this." two cameras and a bunch of other people and I don't know what they're all doing yeah. and, and you're like oh okay it's for the so- it's, they're actually it's a social media yeah. shoot and you know I, I, I'll do it and I, it's fine I got the
1: sense of that when, when your most recent uh, series where you're interviewing celebrities Stormzy yeah. and Judy all that. I really got the sense that the size of the crew and the staticness of yeah. the interview might have been difficult for you having yeah. only ever done interviews I mean so on weird. the move yeah. and doing things it's so much easier to talk to someone when you're not sat fucking yeah, staring at them like but but suddenly you're sat on a stool with a huge crew and it's just all or nothing in that
2: hour i always think like um the thing you say before the interview starts and the thing you say after the interview ends are often more interesting than, than anything get, that gets said. that's Something why in you your podcast in, in your
1: grounded podcast you heard all of the yeah. kerfuffle and getting in the on new air.
2: one you all that the throat clearing the yeah, thank yeah. you the goodbye the hell that's all included i and I think you know that's something that carries over from the TV as well. Like yeah. how you come into a room, how ha- how you initiate a conversation. Yeah, all of that is um, it matters. Part part of the th- the, the thing itself. Yeah. Um, the relevant Nietzsche quote is: I, I, I always try and get in a Friedrich. I love Nietzsche this. Quote. Come on then, Because I, I made it. I made it the my first book. I made it the the epigraph of the book. Even even when you lie, you nevertheless tell the truth with the shape that your mouth makes when you lie. (laughs) Something like that. I slightly garbled it, but that's the idea. It's like, it's metadata. Like, it's the idea that the circumstance of of how you sit, how you say what you say, uh, the intonation, everything other than the words, the explicit words, are also providing Mm, truthful information.
1: Mm, mm. Your book, when I saw it, I thought, and you can... You know, to say this isn't true or or not, but it felt very authentic to you in that the cover Mm -hmm. is kind of like what it looks like compared to what it reads like is so different Mm -hmm. because it's got this kind of dad pun as a title. Got to get through this, yeah. It's kind of turquoise and yellow, these kind of bright, garish colours. It's It's got got a close-up picture of 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 you, so it does. And then you read it, and it's it's so. Uh, beautifully exquisitely written and literary and the way that you write I had to get my dictionary out I loved it I learned loads of yeah. you called Harleston a polyglot Yeah, a metonym for the disadvantage yeah. like you know it's just you write incredibly mm-hmm. and Thank it made you. it made me think about that kind of uh, juxtaposition between you being very smart but also very into humour and playfulness yeah. and fun and, and kind of those two things sitting beside each other and maybe that's maybe yeah. that's the essence
2: uh, you know I I think that I I there's this tension isn't there between um absolutely wanting to spread your wings whether it's in writing and and um or 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 in the programs you make but also being ruthless and disciplined about not being pretentious being being you know reaching people you know I and, I, and it's a fine line between using a few long words because it's fun and it's enjoyable and they express something but also not being a dick about Mm. it Mm. and and funny you should mention the cover (laughs) of the book because like I I think of myself as a accommodating person and maybe sometimes to a fault like that I don't really like conflict and the one time I had a like mini disagreement with my publisher was when they showed me the cover of the book and I was like I was like, "This is ridiculous!" Like, yeah. and and it was because my name, Louis, through was like, "Louis, <laughs> like it was like one thousand point type, and then the title, which I again, it was my idea for a title to have a goofy kind of yeah. title, like "Gotta Get Through This," but it was it was really small, and you know, by this stage I'd sort of because I when I signed my book contract, I'm like, "Oh, and they'll obviously like they'll just want to, it to be kind of literary," yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. then you realize, know, "Oh no." This is actually a book that's supposed to sit next to books by Jonathan Ross and yes, Bob Mortimer yes, and, and like, Jeremy yes. Clarkson, and and they're not looking. So it's got a pop. Yeah, they're it's not looking for the next Zadie Smith. to Mention someone <laughs> we were talking about earlier, or you know, you're not as much as I might like to think. I'm in the, I'm in my little sort of lovely literary garden of of my fellow literateurs, You know, oh yes, we've just we're publishing the new uh, I mean the peer group of writers I admire like uh, Philip Roth or uh, Jeffrey Eugenides or mm. I mean I read mm, I like... love him
1: so, so it doesn't look like those
2: books no and it's like and, and so it's like this is, looks like but the writing does write like those like, books like airport anyway the, the compromise was they made the title a bit I was like my name's in the title as well just make it at least make the yeah. title a bit bigger so that was as far as we got with it
1: Um, what is the change that you'd still like to make? And, and we won't say to the world because that's impossible but yeah. just to you and how you're living your life if at all maybe you're happy where you're at but if there's anything you still want to tweak moving forward um,
2: I'm, I'm in the process of making a change Right and I think the change is like being aware that I'm getting older I'm
1: so you're going to be 53 on I'm
2: Saturday I'm turning 53 shortly mm. uh, and and As you get older, you realise, well, quite clearly, like death. Death is, if not round the corner, like it's, you know, um, a few houses down the road. And so suddenly that kind of, that urge to sort of chase success, defining success as professional um, accomplishments and maybe financial security, like that diminishes and you sort of think, well what about like the whole complement of life right and 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 things that you maybe thought oh maybe i'll get to that one day like just kicking back and just well i mean being around a bit more traveling less Mm. um being more present for the family cooking more which is obviously a a change that i've made you know we, we we mentioned that we're neighbors we are lucky enough to have a local tennis club yes are you aware yes big shout out to elmwood tennis club love elmwood and i'm like well, maybe i should start getting down there playing a bit of tennis lovely club being an old fart you yeah, know what i mean yeah, yeah. do you oh, play listen. did you say
1: I lo- I'm, de- I'm down for tennis i'm it's actually trying to find me. a tennis partner because i'm not very good but I, do- I like whacking the ball
2: i need lessons yeah so there's that and then being a bit more health conscious right i mean well you look great for being thank 53 you. i mean i've been exercising I had a tooth out. Right. Have you had that yet? No. Oh, my God. I had a molar out. Oh, God. Drinking a bit less. Right. I'm re- I read a book. I've been reading a book by Adrian Childs, the um, presenter, yes. journalist. Yes. And it's called something like The Good Drinker. And his thing is like, you know, people see it as all or nothing. Like, you either drink or you go teetotal. His thing is like, there are ways of just, you have a, a drink. Just drink so that you enjoy it, but but don't let it be in control of you. Right. So that 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 has been something I've been working on a little bit, yeah, so just a sort of sense of like balance take the balancing the life out a little bit,
1: yeah, and is there stuff that you're working on that you're really excited about I always mean, yeah, it's more telly stuff, more serious, I mean I'm,
2: this isn't just me um shouting out the podcast, but yeah, the interviews I've done for that, and sort of giving myself license to um meet people who I would never otherwise be across their, their work. Mm. I, I, you know, when I did grounded, one of the people I interviewed was the YouTuber KSI. Mm-hmm. And I was dimly aware of him through um, my kids. And watching. their obsession with prime. And, and well, that's God. certainly a big thing now. Unbelievable. I mean, that's a, I believe that's a whole other phenomenon. And since it, the, that interview was two years ago and then three years ago, maybe. And since then, I've, you know, JJ is is a friend now I, yeah. I made a documentary with him but it's also been a way of experiencing this flowering of talent that exists online like, and, right. and so for the new run of episodes for Spotify I've talked to some high profile internet creators in a way that not to sound like a to, you know like complete I think, boomer I think we're allowed but, to talk about but it but you know it's like the, it's that world of um,
1: so you've got Amelia on there Amelia de, de Moldenberg. Moldenberg. yeah amazing yeah
2: and who obviously chicken shop date is mm-hmm. a phenomenon and people who, you know, don't have to go and cap in hand to a commissioner at the BBC and say, mm. please commission my show. But have created content viewed by millions, hundreds of millions yeah. and um, viewed all over the world and purely out of their own, you know, self-starting their own little project. Mm-hmm it's
1: cool it's very cool I look forward to listening to it so it drops if you're listening now it drops tomorrow start of June
2: the first one's Shania Twain and Shania it's, Twain it's superb who would have Madness. thought I'd be interviewing Shania Twain I mean why not she's so great yeah yeah oh my god she's um, a legend
1: Louis thank you
2: thank you that
1: was really nice I really enjoyed it I it can't believe it's taken us this places. long
2: to, to hook it up did it go meta
1: well just because when you're interviewing about interviewing so you're talking about interviewing and then I was like oh god maybe I need to be Doing this more, Alyssa, you're,
2: you're doing head. perfect. Yeah, I'd listen to you. Did you interview Rylan? Yes, I Ryland. think the Rylan one. When I did, I did an interview with Rylan, and I and I listened to yours, and I'm like, geez, maybe I don't need to interview him now. <laughs> that that did the job.
1: Well, that's the thing about podcasting is that, and, and something I really related to whilst well, reading your book, and you're talking about those years when you were doing celebrity shows, and you just spend your whole life waiting for people to say yes, and it's very hard. Yeah um podcasting's kind of like that you you have to have a lot of patience and you have to wait for the right people but sometimes the best ones are the ones that are not the most well known yeah you know and i think actually
2: and you're exactly right and i think that feeling of slightly kind of having to kind of go around cap in hand saying like Mm. please please will you do my podcast and and actually, I, you want people to enter into it freely and, and willingly. without any sense of... Yeah, yeah. and willingly and, yeah. And, enth- and ideally enthusiastically. Right, yeah, yeah. So that, that's the part of it. But actually, so far, we've been lucky. like People have been up for it. And yeah. so um, long may it continue.
1: Well, I guess I'll see you around.
2: Well, I'll see you down at Elmwood. See you Look down at Elmwood. Look out for my serve. <laughs> I, I think my serve is the strongest part of my game. Okay. And my You've backhand, got the height. My forehand is... Not good.
1: You've got the height, so you serves grand. Yeah. Just I've gonna, got a double I'm handed gonna, backhand that's pretty badass. That's my I best count. one. Everything else I can't, I I'm can't serve for shit. try and win it on aces. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> be, uh, thank you, Louis.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Annie.
1: All right, I'm going to press stop. Thank you so much to Louis Theroux. I can confirm that he is exactly the same person in real life that he is on the television. And there was a weird kind of surreal feeling of having him in my kitchen, having only ever watched him on telly for so long. It took a, a little bit of getting used to, but he's extremely personable and affable and nice to be around and uh, really enjoyed that conversation. So thank you to him for that. Let me know what you thought. Love to know your opinions and what you heard, any comments. You can hit me up on Instagram. I'm on Annie McManus there. And don't forget to subscribe to Changes, a rating, a review, always so appreciated. If you're a fan of Changes, um, it helps so much to get us seen and continue the podcast and continue bringing you episodes every single Monday morning. Also, with regards to Louis Theroux's podcast, if you're interested to hear that, it's out tomorrow on the 6th of June. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. See you later.